Before we get started today, here's a few words from Bridget O'Keefe, a professor of history at Brooklyn College, CUNY, about why you should support the Eurasian Knot. I support the Eurasian Knot podcast because I enjoy listening in on and learning from the intelligent and dynamic conversations among experts. I also appreciate the gifted, nuanced storytelling. The Eurasian Knot brings the past and the present to life in a way that traditional media often fails to do. I assign it in my courses, and my students at Brooklyn College love it. I support the Eurasian Knot podcast because there is no other podcast like it, and I am grateful to have learned from and laughed along with it. Support the art you love by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com forward slash Euronaut. That's patreon.com forward slash E-U-R-A-K-N-O-T. Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Russian East European Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. And as Bridget said, if you enjoy this podcast and learn a lot from it, please consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash or to euronaut.org and click that patron link and become a monthly patron. So this is the fifth episode in our series on religion in post-socialist societies, which was organized this spring as part of the Reese interview series at the University of Pittsburgh and with Susanna Bogomil, who is at the Institute of Archaeology and Ethnology at the Polish Academy of Sciences. I'm here with Susanna Bogomil for the fifth interview in our a series on post-socialism and religion. And this interview is with Katya Tolstaya. And uh, Susanna, why don't you tell us a bit about what Katya works on and the importance of this interview for listeners? So it provokes that, you know, this particular podcast, I think, is the only one in our series that deserves a little bit of emotional preparation for the listeners. Katya discusses the destruction of the human being by the state. So what you will find in this podcast is uh, the question what, when, and how it happens that the human being uh, disappears from the human body and what are the consequences of this process. The orthodox world is inhabited by sons, protectors, martyrs who enter in intensive relations with people. That's why I think that a question that Katya asks is really fundamental because she asks a question, how it happened? How it happened that this huge and powerful group of sons and the God itself withdraw from the world of the Soviet camp? So I think that in the face of the ongoing war in Ukraine, you know, this question about the impact of extreme dehumanization on human conditions gets, unfortunately, a new dimension. And that's why it's really important to listen to this podcast. Well, thank you very much, Susanna. Katya Tolstaya is the chair of Theology and Religion in Post-Trauma Societies and the founding director of the Institute for the Academic Study of Eastern European Christianity at Vrija Universitat in Amsterdam. Her research focuses on the new field of post-Soviet theology, post-traumatic, post-totalitarian, and post-genocidal studies. 
Theology After Gulag, Bucha, and Beyond is the first phase of a large research project that looks at the intersections of violence, trauma, and theology. Here's Katya Tolstaya. Just to start our conversation about religion, theology, and gulag, and other traumatic incidences in the 20th century, I'm curious, just to start, how did you become interested in theology? I grew up in the Soviet Union during the 70s. It was a rather atheistic surrounding. And when the perestroika began, there was a huge interest of intelligentsia towards everything that had to do with religion. And by accident, my father, who was uh, a medical doctor, he got a job with the St. Petersburg Seminary and Academy of Theology. They had this medical department where uh, students could go when they were ill. And my father, who is a Jew, but not a religious Jew, he became interested in the spiritual revival within this Orthodox theological seminary and academy. That was how, as a young girl, I started to be interested in liturgy and in theology and philosophy. So that's way. And then I came to the Netherlands like 34 years ago, I think, and I came to this very small city of Kampen, and there was just nothing to study than theology. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and, yes, and basically a friend of uh, my mother, she said to me, you love philosophy, you love to read so much, and you love philosophy. Why won't you go and study theology? It's almost the same. So... <laughs> That's how I, I enrolled and never left. <laughs> so is there something about it that really spoke to you or fascinated you? Because the way you just put it is kind of like, well, you know, it was around. So I, I decided to study it. But what pulled you into it? What about theology that interests you? Absolutely. Now, first of all, I do not really believe in a coincidence. It was, of course, so I, I came to this, for example, I came to this very small city of Kampon, and there was nothing to study then theology. But what attracted me from, uh, also from my love for uh, great literature for, uh, as a child and for poetry was something which lies beyond the human experience. And being raised up in an atheistic or in the family of intelligentsia atheists, I always was a believer. So I, I always believed in God and I always was interested in theological questions, in the ultimate questions of human suffering and the existence of God and evil and uh, how it all is possible and whether a reasonable or any explanation to the utmost difficult questions uh, uh, is possible. So when uh, this uh, theological university at uh, a city of 30,000 people by accident um, revealed itself in my life, it was like, of course, it was like a destiny to go and study there. So I came and my mouth was open because of interest and inspiration. And it, it still is after almost 35 years doing theology. You're dealing with, you're interested in theology and studying theology, but you've also paired it in this research project that you initiated on the Gulag and thinking about theology after the Gulag. What inspired you to do this project? Basically, the very, very, very first thing at the Theological University in Kampen, where I came to study, 
was a story about theologies after the big uh, atrocities, uh, theology after Auschwitz, theology in Auschwitz in German, in the first place. And these theologies uh, were, as they said, uh, able to change mentalities in post-traumatic uh, societies, particularly in post-Nazi Germany. Theology was able to change mentalities and to contribute to this whole process of coming to terms with the traumatic past. So already at the first day, the first hour at the theological university in Kampen, I thought, okay, the study of theology takes seven years. After seven years, of course, someone will come and start a project about uh, theology after Gulag, and I will be able to join the, my theological knowledge. So. When such a project didn't start, I thought, okay, I have to start it myself. And when, especially when Putin came to power and we began to to see how church and state conflates ideologically, the project became more and more urgent. So I thought I have to start it myself. And theology and its relationship to the Gulag, do you mean the religious reflection or coming to terms with the gulag or is it a broader philosophical reflection for example to use say the holocaust as a comparison after the holocaust there was a kind of crisis of two fronts right you have delving into theological issues but you also have a rejection of them because if such a horrible event could happen then there must be no god but frankly is or is it a combination of both in terms of theology's relationship to, to the Gulag? I always envisioned my project as an interdisciplinary and uh, interreligious joint venture of engaged scholars who bring their expertise into a focused systematic research and a very focused valorization project. So never detached from other disciplines. Philosophy is not the one, but politicology, literature, uh, literary sciences, sociology, anthropology, medical sciences are most welcome and involved into my project. Also because, seriously, theology cannot do anything in the 21st century from a crystal palace. We have to engage with other academic disciplines. And so talk about the, the issue of getting over the trauma of, say, the gulag, because you, you mentioned one of the things of the revival uh, in, in the late Soviet and post early post-Soviet period is that religion and, and spiritual thinking can act as a way to overcome the horrors of the past. Can you talk about that relationship? about theology being able to help to overcome. Yes, of course, and it should be done at least on three levels, I think. First of all, theological reflection can help. There is a lot of surplus value to to discuss and to engage and rethink uh, the questions like radical evil and the existence of God and apply them to a certain context or the for Christian theology, the question of Christology and the suffering of Christ in relation to the unicity and particularity of each individual suffering from a theological theoretical point of view, then there are of course many 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 very helpful and useful practices 
from practical theology and post-drama studies from other theologies after and for, from other co conflict situations. And we can learn from those. And then, of course, at small missiological and ecclesiastic level, in building communities, there are also very, very interesting and useful practices from other contexts which can be brought to a specific context, in this case, to post-Soviet context. So at least on three levels, theology can be useful. And especially in the context of post-Soviet bloc, where Contrary to Western European countries, there is a religious revival instead of losing religion. Theology should be engaged into coming to terms with traumatic pasts. Absolutely. And what about the, the interfaith issue, right? Because take, say, the Soviet Union, for example. It's a multi-confessional country. Despite its atheistic propaganda, you have people of a variety of different religious faiths who experience the gulag are you speaking mostly of, say, Christianity? And what is the relationship to other faiths? Thank you for this question as well. I think I said before, I always, from the very start of the project, I envisioned the project as an interdisciplinary and interreligious project. Because these ultimate questions about the existence of a divine God or any power which we call divine or transcendent in any religion, and its relation to evil and to suffering and to questions of human rights and free will, they are relevant for any human being and any human experience, regardless of, of any belonging also regardless of religious belonging and i think only in an engaged effort we can come to terms with traumatic pasts and i think that the time of religious divisions amongst others are over in these times when we very seriously have to consider the future of this planet and the, the I think it has to be a joint academic effort, interdisciplinary, and a joint interreligious effort. Many people, there are many books, not just scholarly books on the Gulag experience, but we have lots of memoirs, we have letters. There's a lot of personal information from people who've survived the Gulag experience. Are there some writers on the Gulag that are key influences for you, and why are they? Yes. Absolutely. But first of all, maybe I have to tell you that while the, the project Theology After Gulag, Bucha and Beyond is meant as an interreligious and interdisciplinary project where each scholar brings their expertise and field of research, which can be, as I just said, not only theology, but also philosophy or political sciences or literature studies, my own research focuses on a phenomenon which I call extreme dehumanization. You all know this phenomenon from Auschwitz or from Gulag. The phenomenon is the best seen in the figure of a goner, of a human being who is um, abandoned uh, all the human features. This is like the figure of the Muslim in Auschwitz, right? Exactly. The Muslim uh, manner of Auschwitz and in the Gulag, these uh, persons were called the Hadyagi, uh, singular the Hadyaga, or indeed uh, Muslim manner or Muslim in Auschwitz. And this phenomenon reveals a human being uh, left uh, of all human features, and it is very 
interesting and, and also somehow paradoxical that the most humane in a human being uh, traditionally has been called the image of God, Imago Dei. So uh, basically, if we consider this phenomenon seriously, then we have to conclude that in such a person, our understanding and perception of human nature and our theological and also humanistic anthropology is challenged. And the best author with whom I'm working with for most with testimonies of extreme dehumanization from the places like Auschwitz or Gulag or blockaded Leningrad as well. But my most reliable and I'm borrowing the term reliable also from this writer. My my most reliable witness is the Russian writer and Gulag survivor Varlam Shalamov. Varlam Shalamov spent 17 years in the Gulag from 1937 to 1953. And he describes, amongst others, Kalumak camps, the most severe gulag camps and the condition of extreme dehumanization with shocking clarity. And I, I think that he is writing to describe a human being in this condition. And what does it mean that a system can make a human being into a goner? I think that his whole drive behind his writings is the phenomenon of extreme dehumanization. But for the project, I'm studying dehumanization in a broader sense, and dehumanization is a condition which I think is symptomatic of oppression. And the whole Soviet experience was dehumanizing, and I find very interesting of that in the five novels of Nobel Prize winner Svetlana Alexievich. She also described it not for the Gulag, but for Soviet life beyond Gulag. But what she describes is also very interesting for nowadays, the systematic disdain uh, for and neglect of human life, which is typical, I think, for Soviet system and post-Soviet system as we see it in, in nowadays Russia. Can you talk about that a bit more? Because when you speak of, say, the dehumanization of the Gulag or even Nazi death camps, that that's easy to relate to and comprehend. But when you extend this out dehumanization to the entire Soviet system, then I'm wondering what you mean exactly by dehumanization. Now, you just said the disregard for human life, but let's be honest here, this isn't unique to the Soviet system. So what do you mean by this kind of dehumanization in this context? I probably mean that what, what I just said, systematic disdain of and neglect of human life. And uh, I think it started from this great Soviet project of creating a, a Soviet man, which Lenin, Lenin has started. And this was the, the whole great project, of course, for the Soviets. I just would like to maybe to allude to the uh, Soviet, great Soviet writer, Maxim Gorky, who already in 1918 wrote, uh, let me quote, he called Lenin's project, I quote, the most brutal scientific experiment. Lenin works like a chemist in a l laboratory, with the d difference that a chemist uses dead matter and Lenin works on li living material. Unquote. 
I think they started to create this Soviet man and they twisted Marx's theorem that the, the matter prevails over, over spirit by influencing matter and spirit and making the, the millions to believe that they lived in the uh, most bright and best world, while the everyday life was absolutely dehumanizing and depressing. I remember, for example, from my childhood, this very depressing dark green color in which any institutional facility was uh, colored. Uh, and I grew up in Leningrad. Uh, Leningrad is, of course, uh, a northern c- city where to recall a poet, Sasha Chorney, there is eight months of darkness. Coming in the winter into school of which walls were painted dark green, it was, it was really depressing. I think they just were busy with influencing the human spirit by that. And our lasting lines for bread or for supplies in the 70s, it's also dehumanizing. This is total neglect for human dignity and life. This is what was very typical of Soviet system, and it pertains now in, in Putin's war against, against Ukraine, of course. When you read that quote from Gorky about this effort to create a new Soviet person, what I was thinking, like the dehumanizing moment is, and it was in that quote, that people are treated as material in the sense of they are just another raw material as if any other raw material right, for the construction of this kind of whatever new future society person. And if you have to use that material, if you have to break that material, if you have to destroy it, then it's worth it, right? It's worth it for the cause of, say, creating this new society. In that quote from Gorky, do you see this as the moment in that the disregard for life is because people are just material? This is exactly what happened and happens. I want to go I want to go back to Shalamov because he's a fascinating figure. In his writings of this process of dehumanization within the Gulag, do you see uh, theological reflections in his observations? Is he contemplating issues of theology or God or human existence? Shalamov is a very interesting witness because he was an atheist. His father was a priest. Shalamov was very much familiar with Orthodox liturgy and with some philosophical and theological issues. But he writes many times that he was an atheist and from his six years old, as he writes, he didn't believe in God. And this makes this writer even more challenging for theology because it necessitates us to be very careful about how we read Shalamov. And for me, methodological considerations about how not to impose any theology or theological presuppositions or not to read Shalamov from theology, but to let Shalamov speak to theology are very important. This is on the one hand. On the other hand, Shalamov, as I already told you, Shalamov is describing or writing from this total shock of this phenomenon of extreme dehumanization, from his own experience of being uh, a goner. And he wants the reader to understand that which is absolutely 
not understandable, namely the phenomenon of extreme dehumanization. So the losing of everything which makes a human being human. And we cannot understand that from our situation. No one can because it's a situation of exception. And he writes about this process of becoming a goner, but he also, of course, sometimes writes about how life returns. And here, I think, lies a very interesting surplus value of theology to read Shalamov. Because of the notion of the union of creation, I will explain that. This is an orthodox theological notion, which we find in early church fathers like Maximus the Confessor, but foremost in Gregory Palamas in a polemic synthesis. And very simple, it's about a perspective that a notion that everything in the world, material and immaterial, is connected by the divine that the whole universe is permeated by the divine. And this has never become a dogma in Eastern Christianity, but it has been declared a dogma at the Council of Constantinople. But you have to see it more like a, a worldview, like a modus vivendi, like something which you consider as something given. And I think that in Shalamov we find this unity, you can call it unity of creation, that everything is connected by something which is more than earthly. And I think that the return of life in Shalamov is always connected to this worldview of the permeation of creation by the divine, because life returns in very small things like a sound of a bird or a sound of a river or the shape of, of a stone at which someone who just is returning from gonerhood is looking. So this is how I see theology in Shalama. Wow, that's really quite powerful, I have to say, this kind of idea of returning to life and then seeing the life connected in the little things, right? They, life manifests itself. And what you're saying is one way to explain that is through a theological lens to some extent. Yes, so some way to understand that, yes. Coming to terms with the gulag has ebbed and flowed over the last 40 years in Russia, right? And we're definitely on an ebb. And a complete working through this the gulag and what it represents in the 20th century in the Soviet Union is very difficult. And there's a good question of whether society will ever overcome it. And just recently in the news, we're seeing plaques being taken down in Russian cities. I just read, I saw that Anna of Makhdava's plaque was taken down. People who suffered or lived through the gulag, that commemoration is being reversed in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What are some of the consequences on Russian society that have occurred because of this extreme dehumanization? How do you see this reflected in Russian society in the last 30, 40 years? Well, I'm not sure that extreme dehumanization has any consequences for the society at large. It has consequences, I think, for for a theological, philosophical, or any humanities uh, reflection on what happened and on the question, what is human nature and what makes a human being human, then you have to start from this phenomenon because, once again, it challenges our whole understanding of human nature. But 
the dehumanization as a broader phenomenon uh, and uh, as a broader characteristic of Soviet society and the fact that the past has not been processed has very deep consequences, of course, for what is happening now in, in Russia. Think, for example, of Russian vulnerability to ideology and propaganda. Those are also the direct consequences of the unprocessed past and of dehumanizing past. Then I would argue that Russian society as a deeply traumatized society. And I think we should yet find our ways to understand how individual daily single traumas pile up uh, in complex traumas, forming a vicious circle, societally and individually. And, and I think that Soviet space has experienced repeated traumas in the 20th century and still is experiencing traumas. Yeah, I wanted to get into that because this is something that I, I have a personal interest in, too, in, in the fact of how really the 20th century, when the former Russian Empire and the Soviet Union has experienced repeated traumas. And I'm really curious about how this has continued to manifest in daily life and also in the general life within, say, Russia in particular. What is this relationship? You mentioned the kind of daily traumas and connecting to the larger kind of societal ones. Can you talk about that a little bit and give some examples of what you mean? Yes, I think the best examples you can find, again, in Svetlana Alexeyevich in her five uh, novels, also because they bring a very wide range of examples from the Second World War and voices of children in the Second World War or, or voices of women in the Second World War to the voices of the survivors and veterans of Afghanistan war and their wives to the voices of victims of children noble and their wives and people around that. And of course, in her book about post-Soviet, how is, how is it called? Time secondhand. Secondhand time. Secondhand time uh, about the post-Soviet society, about the traumas of the Soviet and post-Soviet daily and collective traumas of the society. So I would really advise uh, her five works also because, of course, she writes from the voices of witnesses. This is extremely important. But to, to your question, how does a daily trauma relate to a collective trauma? I, I mean, every day, a, a very, a very gray day of any human being in Soviet Union, in a big city, for example, where I grew up. It started from an overcrowded metro or bus or a vehicle with which you had to hit to your school or to your work. Then you had to work for the whole day and then you had to stay in line for food for hours. So these are very small daily inconveniences, you would call them, but some of them were also very traumatic. Like, for example, just what comes to mind that the rate of abortions, for example, in Soviet society. It was extremely high, and it is a traumatic experience for any woman. Those are examples of daily traumas, and then with collective traumas of the Second World War, of the Russian Revolution, of Finnish War, for example, which never have been processed in a correct way, in a systematic societal way, and worked through 
with the history which has been rewritten for ideological purposes uh, time and again, and with myth creation. So you get this very difficult and extreme complex situation which we have to work through and which really calls for, again, for an engaged uh, reflection from scholarship and societal reflection. Right. And finally, after the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and especially the atrocities of Bucha and continuing atrocities, you've expanded this theology after the Gulag into theology after the Gulag, Bucha, and beyond. And how do you fit the atrocities of Bucha, the war crimes, and the, the other war crimes that have been unearthed over the last year? How do you connect these to your larger project of after the Gulag? Look, I really have to omit the whole post-Soviet history. But as I said, I see much of what is happening now as a result of the unprocessed traumatic pasts of post-Soviet countries and Russia in the first place. Then the second factor is that in Russia, a deep and systematic reflection about the Soviet past has never emerged as a, as a broad societal movement. The past is unprocessed and rewritten for uh, ideological purposes. I mentioned that already. And then the third factor, of course, is that Russia has never distanced uh, itself from its past, the USSR, and that the institutional descendants of perpetrators, the security forces, are still in power. So those are the three factors which which explain the continuation of uh, the traumatic past in the current war. So th this is why I see what happened in Bucha or in Mariupol as a direct consequence of the unprocessed traumatic past. And do you see in the area of theology, whether it's scholars or actual theologians, religious practitioners. And over the last year, have you seen an increase of theological reflection in light of the war? Or has the propaganda of the state overtaken a lot of this? Mm, it's a very interesting question. So for, for uh, Russia, of course, the propaganda has overtaken uh, a lot. And it is a very interesting question how the macro, meso, and micro levels relate to each other. So if we talk about the Kremlin ideology, which is now falling together with the ideology of Patriarch Kirill at the macro level, it is very interesting why Patriarch Kirill would proclaim what he is proclaiming now, namely extremely obscurantistic ideological propagandistic, nationalistic perspectives, which in former years were obscured to, to the society and certainly to, to someone as educated as Patriarch Kirill's. And those who are the voices from micro level, from grassroots, from some very nationalistic and obscurantistic groups, how and why they uh, came to the macro level of Kremlin and, uh, and Moscow Patriarchate uh, is a very interesting question to try to understand and to do research on. I don't have a direct answer to that. The question is, of course, why does it trigger? Why does this ideological and very rough narrative, why does it trigger the Russian population? So th this is for Russia. But also in Russia, of course, the situation is absolutely not monolithic. 
And you have to address people, again, from the grassroots who are not supporting this obscure narrative of Kremlin and the patriarchy. And you have to, I think, to try to engage with those people in Russia. And I think a great potential is also for theological engagement with those Russians who left Russia and who are most willing to contribute to fighting against this war in any possible way, also by theological reflection. And then you have, of course, uh, the whole community of theologians who are engaging with post-Soviet societies who are living in the West and who are working now, reflecting about the war and how this war could happen. And these are all voices which I think should be engaging to talk with each other and to work on a common project of coming to terms with what is happening now and would there be any possibilities of healing if yes how to do that and this brings me back to these practices from other theologies after we do not have to develop or to invent a wheel again we can learn from other theologies that was katya tostaya Katya Tostaya is the Chair of Theology and Religion in Post-Trauma Societies and the Founding Director of the Institute for the Academic Study of Eastern European Christianity at Veria Universität in Amsterdam. Her research focuses on the new field of post-Soviet theology, post-traumatic, post-totalitarian, and post-genocidal studies, and her project Theology After Gulag, Bucha, and Beyond is the first in a large project that looks at the intersections of violence, trauma, and theology in the post-Soviet space. This is the Eurasian Knot, and I'm your host, Sean Guillory. This episode was edited by Daniel Cooper from PodCuts Editing. You know, editing your podcast shouldn't be a hassle, and that's why the Eurasian Knot has partnered with PodCuts Editing. Their expertise consistently enhances our podcast quality and streamlines our production process. So if you're interested in Daniel's services, please head to podcutsediting.com and experience their service. Daniel gives your first edit free of charge so you can get a taste of what his work is like. I highly recommended it. And as you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. It's important for you to become a patron so we can have the funds to pay people like Daniel and uh, others who work for us to improve the quality of this show. So go to patreon.com slash and consider becoming a patron. Well, until next time, bye.